Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Ghibliotech, the podcast that comes out of retirement to review new films by the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm the boy. So join us in our glorious quest into the world of Studio Ghibli. Jake, Steph, first time in three plus years or two nearly three years a new ghibli film we're reviewing on the podcast how are we feeling well i suppose it's pretty monumental that it's not just a new ghibli film since the inception of the podcast it's the first hayao miyazaki film to come out and the wind rises was fairly recent history when we began and we thought that was the end of the book that the last book on the ghibliotech shelf had been placed uh, and now, 10 years after the release of that, we're coming back. We're, we've cracked open the doors once again. We found another tome on the shelf. Uh, it's a pretty exciting day. It's a pretty exciting time, I think, for Ghibli fans around the world. And of course, Steph, this is, is this the first time you're on reviewing a Ghibli film? I think it is. Because yeah. way back when we didn't have you on, we, you only came into the fold on the microphone, at least, for Con onwards, right? Yes. Yeah, so... I've been absorbing all of you guys' Ghibli chat, watching all the films behind the scenes with you, but never on mic for a Ghibli film. So, yeah, this is exciting. Exciting to talk about this it. This is the Wizard of Oz moment. You've been behind the curtain pulling all the strings as this intimidating <laughs> force that we've just spoken about in the Ghibliotech. And now she's she's coming plundering in, pulling her pulleys and levers. <laughs> that That timeline, Jake, is quite wild to consider because, yes, 10 years since the wind rises five years since we started the podcast mm. so it's almost like these equal chunks of time leading well, up to the today. the start of the podcast is closer to the release of the wind rises than we are now to the release of the podcast this, this is a wanna feel old moment <laughs> <laughs> and i do <laughs> and so it falls to us to record an episode and as we did for the entire uh, library of ghibli films previously we have to, to you know deliver the cohesive comprehensive authoritative view on this film 
<laughs> which is uh, no mean feat. So I think we're going to do this a little differently to how we've done previous episodes. We did toy with doing a no marketing Toshio Suzuki episode, uh, which uh, is, is in reference to the fact that this film was released in Japanese cinemas with just a poster and nothing else. However, that would have just been probably an episode title in your podcast feed <laughs> zero seconds long <laughs> but but the way we're going to do it this time is we're going to do a sort of standard episode standard length harking back to the old days of the podcast where we have synopsis context review but that review is going to be more of a light pebble skim across the film um, maybe f- not necessarily first reactions but immediate reactions and then we're going to come back and then really relax get a couple of drinks settle in for an hour plus and go deeper and deeper into the film and then i think maybe which in the new year i think it'd be great to revisit again because the thing we neither none of us have seen the dub yet so there's mm. so much still to talk about with this film but at least today listeners i guess as well what makes this tricky is that this film has had a very staggered release internationally maybe you saw it at the london film festival toronto film festival maybe you've seen it at some of the previews that have been up and down the country in the uk Maybe you're in France and it's already sold 1.3 million tickets and you've seen it many times. Maybe you're in Japan where it's been a box office hit. It's come out in previews and coastal releases in America. In the UK, there are previews through December, but the actual release is Boxing Day. So it's a tricky one. So for listeners, maybe you're saving yourself for that big watch, which is fine. This podcast will still be here when you've watched it. But if you have watched it, there is this episode to dive into, I suppose. I've not had to say this for a long time, but Steph, can you please tee things up with a little synopsis for us? I'm happy to. Uh, so here we go. This is the very poetic synopsis uh, from the G-Kids website landing page for the film. So a young boy named Mojito, yearning for his mother, ventures into a world shared by the living and the dead. There, death comes to an end and life finds new beginning a semi-autobiographical fantasy about life, death and creation, in tribute to friendship, from the mind of Hayao Miyazaki. Okay, Michael. So, in terms of context sections, previously in Ghibliotech episodes, there's been a couple of years tops between releases sometimes just few months between those releases getting us from one point in ghibli history to the next and you had about 15 20 minutes to cover that period how do you feel about covering 10 years of ghibli history in that same period of time you know i'm gonna try (laughs) (laughs) a decade is quite a quite a landscape to traverse the a funny thing to do would have been we could have done previously on ghibli attack <laughs> bits from the the wind rises context the earwig and the witch context the never-ending man documentary episode that we did um all these episodes where we've talked about what me Hayao miyazaki has been up to this retirement that wasn't really a retirement but that last film i mentioned never-ending man is key because that's the documentary that came out around 2016 and it documented the making of Borrow the Caterpillar, the Ghibli Museum short, where it was first revealed to the world that Miyazaki wasn't fully retired after The Wind Rises, where they shut up shop at the studio. 
Um, and I think it's in that film as well where he sort of says, and maybe I'll make a feature as well, guys, uh, with that amount of chipper feeling behind him. Um, but we do find out now that actually it was halfway through 2016 that he started writing proposals for what this new feature film may be. Um, in the G Kids press notes, they've translated parts of that proposal. And it's um, quite a downer, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll read some of it. Uh, where Miyazaki's writing, um, there's nothing more pathetic than telling the world you'll retire because of your age and then making yet another comeback. Is it truly possible to accept how pathetic that is and do it anyway? Doesn't an elderly person deluding themselves that they're still capable despite their geriatric forgetfulness prove that they're past their best? You bet it does. <laughs> then he continues... It's all very well to drag in others and cause a heap of trouble yet still finish a film. But it's also entirely possible that you could become bedridden or die come crunch time. The instigator himself might be fully prepared for that. But for those who end up burdened with an incomplete film, it would be unbearable. Feature length films take at least three years to complete. I could do one in a year when I was in my 40s, but now I'm 75. It's a lot to get done in three years. So he was clearly worrying not just about what sort of film to make, but whether he could even do it. Um, whether he could finish it, whether there'd even be an audience for it. He was thinking, like, what would the world even look like in three years' time? And, of course, it took longer than three years, didn't it? But in 2017, that's when production starts in earnest, and there was a lot of buzz at the time. I remember when people found job listing posts saying, do you want to come and work for Studio Ghibli? And everyone's, like, freaking out, saying, what's, what's this about? Um, and then in October of that year... Toshio Suzuki actually announces the film and he reveals the title which was at least in the, for the Japanese release How Do You Live and that's the title taken from a book by Gensaburo Yoshino which um, Miyazaki was familiar with and rediscovered later in life and was inspired by not so much we found out by the content of the book but the title the idea of a title like that really well we've said before, before haven't we that the um, marketing copy and the taglines for Miyazaki films are sometimes just live or well, the themes are like, how do we live in this world that's decaying around us? So it, I guess it's the ultimate Miyazaki move to actually make the title be, how do you live? Uh, although, you know, it's not really an adaptation. Uh, people did rush to then pick up the book. And it's a book from the 1930s. P people but... including us. <laughs> including us. Well, <laughs> if you very, and we all and very much read it and speculated about how, oh, yes. how he could possibly be adapting this thing. <laughs> It's so funny. Everybody now says, well, really, if you read the actual announcement, it never said it was an adaptation. But everybody, including publishers, translators, Neil Gaiman, everybody <laughs> around the world, we've got our copies of How Do You Live, which came out in, um, in English. And it actually says, you know, soon to be a, a film by Hayao Miyazaki. And reading back on the Neil Gaiman introduction for that is where he's just sort of vibing on the book saying, how could this be a Miyazaki film? Turns out it wasn't gonna, ever going to be a Miyazaki film. Um, but that's fascinating. I can't think of any other flex in, fil in, in the filmmaking world where someone could just say, I'm making a film and it's called Winnie the Pooh or something. I don't like <laughs> just to take, take the title of a book and then everybody goes wild. And he's like, oh no, I was just inspired by the title of Winnie the Pooh. Feels like the equivalent of when... Um film productions leave fake scripts in bins and stuff to like throw people <laughs> off the scent so nobody actually knows what they're actually doing it does make me think um, of this sorry entirely different but there's a long day's journey in tonight the oh yeah. uh bygan film and mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with the eugene o'neill play but it's just yes like, 
We're just going to call it that. But I suppose when it's a new filmmaker or it's a, something like that, you wouldn't necessarily think it. But when it's Miyazaki, who is somebody who is, reads loads of literature, has adapted lots of literature in the past, of course everyone's going to rush to figure that out. In fact, and this is something that I think maybe now in the future, once the film's out, people will dig deeper into, he was more inspired by a, 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 an English language book called The Book of Lost Things by John Connolly, which has actual plots and lore and world and thematic connections with the film. But that's something that has been sort of lost in the cacophony around the actual title of the film in Japan. But anyway, the original plan when Suzuki announced it was that the film would come out for the 2020 Olympics. And spoiler alert, guys, it didn't work out that way. Um, and the difference this time compared to previous Miyazaki films is that, you know, this is his chance to be descended from a giant sloth, mm. which is the phrase he used about Takahata, how he didn't, he was uh, not beholden to deadlines very much. And on this film, they really were taking their time. The dates kept slipping. And we've definitely mentioned that many times. And particularly, we've trotted out that quote, I think it was from Suzuki, where at one point they were finishing maybe one minute of animation per month. And Jake, you always would say, you know, how long that would take to make a feature film. Some ungodly amount of time. But time passed and we'd hear bits and bobs um, about what the film's about. And it would be really interesting because every time there'd be a new, new, new press release or an article, I remember there was a big feature in the New York Times in 2021, there'd be another wave of people saying, he's come out of retirement, finally. And everyone everyone just turns into goldfish online, basically. Uh, they forget that he's been working on this for a long time and we've known. So anyway, we hear bits and bobs about what the film's about, how it's working, and there's that quote that does the rounds that Suzuki gives where he says that Miyazaki's making this film for his grandson as a way of saying Grandpa is moving on to the next world soon, but he is leaving behind this film, which I guess sort of plants this seed that it is a gift to future generations, maybe a swan song, maybe a final grand statement, even though, again, no one has ever said it would be his final film. And we now know that he's not retired after this film. He's still working hard. But in that time period, God, you know, in the time that he's working on this, there's so much that's happened. And, you know, sort of um, we could do that very online thing of... Um, uh, many things that have happened in world history in the time that Miyazaki took Miyazaki to make one film. But simple, hot, you know, sad things like Isao Takahata passing away in 2018 happened. Very happy things internationally, like in, the, uh, in 2020 with the huge Netflix and HBO Max streaming deal, meaning that the films were more available than ever and had the chance to get this sort of global awareness and attention that they hadn't really been able to have previously. And I guess that deal is quite important because it's been mentioned that that big sale, the amount of money that they got from that, allowed Ghibli to fully finance this film themselves as an independent production. Um, if you watch any previous Ghibli films, there'd be a lot of hyphens and ampersands uh, on the copyright or on that sort of production notice that comes up at the beginning because they have this production committee all sorts of people would be co-financing and co-producing the film together this was an independent production and i guess in, that allows in, them to take their time and yeah. not if it hit any deadline it makes me think of megalopolis the um 
<laughs> Francis Ford Coppola film that we might be getting next year. Who knows? But that he cashed in all his vineyard money and to raise that, <laughs> raise the budget for that film to make it all himself and make it exactly the way that he wants to. It's, I mean, the prospect of essentially just handing this over to Miyazaki with no commercial burden is amazing. And, exactly. and essentially betting the entire catalogue mm. of the studio on the success of this is quite an amazing move. Absolutely. Um, and if you take Suzuki at his word, this is the most expensive Japanese film ever made. And I guess that's only because production takes so, took so long on it. They had to finance however many years for what 2017 to 2023 had to finance five six years of act- active production probably took a lot took a lot of money there but we did wonder if we'd ever get a chance to see this film as time passed and um that all changed on the 13th of december 2022 it's my birthday um when they released the poster they announced the release date july 2023 the poster was this very confounding, strange graphic of a hand-painted bird man thing. Um, I remember exactly where I was when I saw this post on the Ghibli Twitter account. I was sitting in the school hall waiting for my kids' nursery Christmas show to begin. Um, do you two remember where you were? Do you remember what you thought when you saw this poster for the first time? No, I don't. But I remember talking on the podcast and saying that I thought it looked like a dragon um yeah yeah um but i don't remember seeing it for the first time. but i remember because it's so vague um that image like and i mean even in the film like that bird man thing is multifunction and changes shape all the time so i could kind of see how i got a dragon from it um, but yeah amazing that something without that much direction to it would continue to be the only bit of marketing really <laughs> yeah Steph, did you because did you think what do you think because it had the title How Do You Live as well so yeah it didn't even have the title that it became known as The Boy and the Heron so like what do you even think looking at that poster I think unlike Jake Jake's wild imaginings of whatever it was on the poster um, I think it it read very bird to me um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I was excited I don't really remember where I was like yeah I feel like this poster has been out for ages and it's all we saw for a really long time um but excitement the kind of hand-drawn element of the poster um was very exciting to me and i think it was an instant like i need this on my wall regardless of Mm. what i think of the film um so yeah i feel like i remember the first image release more because that filled me with more like trepidation than the poster did because um, it's obviously a lovely poster, but yeah. Well, that's quite a way in, in the future at this yeah. point, because um, that's all they released before the film was re- you know, hit Japanese cinemas in July, um, twenty twenty three. There was a lot of chat, lots of speculation, um, particularly from people wondering how the film would be released. Jake, you and I definitely had lots of people saying, "Surely it's going to play Cannes. It's going to have a premiere at Cannes," and we were always saying, "Well, actually, they've never." world premiered a film a Miyazaki film at a festival before its um, Japanese release so that'd be very unlikely and that all these milestones in the film year passed without any word of Ghibli showing up 
and they held firm to that Japanese release date. Complete blackout on the marketing front. No key stills or imagery from the film. No official movie pamphlet. No trailer. And I remember even seeing tweets from friends of the show and Japanese people I follow on social media saying that they didn't even release the tickets that early. You know how it's kind of standard now for pre-sales to go on sale like a month beforehand if it's a Marvel movie or whatever. They were like really waiting for like five days beforehand a week beforehand mm-hmm. to book their tickets they really wanted to make it feel i guess like the old days we'd be queuing around the block to actually see a blockbuster um an absolutely wild strategy and i guess a wise one because anime blockbusters now are quite common in japan it used to be that only ghibli films made massive amounts of money but in the last few years we've had demon slayer one piece red suzume the first slam dunk Jujutsu Kaisen, Zero. Um, they were all huge hits at the Japanese box office in those years when Miyazaki was working away. And I suppose one thing Ghibli has over those films are name recognition. So Studio Ghibli, hi Miyazaki. Let's just put the film into, into cinemas on the strength of those names. And God, I, I, I find this so wild. Like, who could do this? <laughs> who could release a film... Not even knowing what it's about. So even that synopsis, Steph, that you read, they didn't even see that synopsis, did they? <laughs> I think they just saw the new film from Hayao Miyazaki. So no synopsis, a strange poster that doesn't really give anything away, a title that is a question that isn't even sort of a plotty, suggestive title. I mean, we have in pop music the surprise drop, the Beyonce's and the Taylor Swift's, but I suppose music works differently now because it's just there on your Spotify. It's They don't need you to go out in the rain to a cinema, pay your money, sit down. It's a bit more passive. So, like, who could do this in cinema, do you think? Is there anybody? I think in an art house world, and for a smaller audience, there would be things that could do this. Um, I I feel like David Lynch would be someone that could be surreptitiously making something and just say it's out on Friday and it's in these cinemas, and lots of people would go and see it. But it wouldn't be like a big commercial success, I don't think. Mm-hmm. This actually made me think of um, Eyes Wide Shut, and that Eyes Wide Shut, we knew that that is a, the most drawn-out production process, and the rumours if we are shooting the equivalent of one minute a month, and what would go on to still hold the Guinness World Record of the longest production shoot in history, or continuing production shoot. But I remember... With Eyes Wide Shut, uh, it had as kind of level pegging on the poster Cruz, Kidman, Kubrick, all in the same font, all in the same size. And that was a kind of marker that I can only think of. It's like, oh, that's where the director of the film has the same top billing and star power as someone at the level of Tom Cruise or... Nicole Kidman, mm-hmm. and that was a and that was a very vague poster, and a film that very much didn't really give too much away. So probably probably the only comparison between Eyes Wide Shut and The Boy and Heron that's going to be out there. <laughs> um, this is why you come to this podcast. <laughs> but like, it would be as if he'd released Eyes Wide Shut without anyone knowing Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were in it, because they, mm. they didn't even announce the voice cast or the animators mm. or any of the credits before the film came out. Mm. So it really is just like. I suppose that's the magic of animation as well. And that's the, to go back to The Wizard of Oz, that's the thing that's behind the curtain is that you can put the animators in the office and no one sees the production. 
whereas a live action production you you cannot make a live action film without people knowing about it because they can see you making it they'll be flying drones the only like current hollywood director i could imagine doing that would be like someone like christopher nolan who i mean i feel like people always turn up in huge droves for whatever he makes regardless Mm. of whether they fully know what they're getting into so i feel like he could probably do like a nolan coming out friday and then people would just go to the imax to see what it is yeah i suppose it's whether they could and whether they'd want to as well because like in live action cinema world people are in love with cinema and they're in love with all of the things around cinema Mm. and i suppose christopher nolan even though he's become a big name he loves his casts he loves his actors he wants to put them front and center Mm. as well in the marketing um Mm. although yeah oppenheimer i guess was as close as you could get to it was just oppenheimer and then a face which is killian murphy's face with a big sun (laughs) and then um Nolan's name as big as that. I suppose that's true. Mm. I, th- I think about David Bowie and Blackstar, which we knew he'd been working on a, on a final album-ish. He put out a single, but everybody was NDA'd, so they couldn't talk about who they were, who was working on it and what it was, and then that was surprise-dropped um, to a certain extent, surprise-released. Anyway, this strange strategy did work. It was um, Its opening was massive and um, was bigger than Spirited Away, is what they put in press releases, although I suppose inflation and 20 years passing, what does that actually mean? It didn't really sustain beyond that. I don't think it's cracked even the top 30 highest grossing Japanese films of all time, let alone the top 10. So it's not even troubling some of the minor Ghibli successes. Uh, but I suppose they don't have that financial imperative to make money and hit that growth uh, that they might have had in the past. It's been an incredible conversation starter though and there's been so much to discover this weird release means that like every detail now is fascinating you know the fact that it was made differently Miyazaki is now very old he used to have like a literal like hand on every frame in the film whether either animating something himself or touching up the animation and he can't do that now so he focused more on the storyboards and the image boards and everything and he delegated more than ever to the animation director on the project who is this uh, in this case was Takeshi Honda whose work we've seen and enjoyed and talked about on this podcast or in various other forms many times before he worked on on Millennium Actress, Evangelion, Jinro, Ghibli films like Tales from Earthsea from Up and Poppy Hill um, and I guess that's a setup that allows a bit more wiggle room for the individual animators to um, make their mark because Ghibli because uh, Miyazaki's not there adhering it to a Miyazaki style and one animator to mention in that regard is a guy called Shinya Ohira who animates a very important scene or sequence in the film that we might talk about in a bit he has a very distinctive and much looser expressionistic style compared to what you'd expect from Miyazaki himself he'd worked on previous Ghibli films um, before but he'd also worked on stuff like Redline, Tech on Kingcrete. He'd worked with Masaki Oasa on Night is Short, Walk on Girl, Lou Over the Wall, Ping Pong, the animation. So like he'd worked on like the wild stylized animation as well as stuff like Miyazaki who has a sort of uh, coherent worldview that's consistent between every frame. And of course we found out that like all the all-stars came back to help out Miyazaki once you actually dig into the credits, you see Kazuoga, 
uh, art director Katsuya Kondo, Hiramasu Yonabayashi comes back into the fold after going to Ponok, Masashi Ando comes back, Joe Hisaishi's on the score. So like, even though there's new stuff, there's familiar stuff as well. And following that Japanese release, things become a bit more conventional after that. As you say, Steph, the stills come out. We do get a trailer. We get an English language title, The Boy and the Heron, which maybe we'll talk about whether that's a good title or a you know a fitting title. It has a bit of a festival rollout, Toronto, San Sebastian, London. Uh, that's where we saw it for the first time. And I guess that's where we should leave it. There's so much... We wouldn't often talk about a film before the... F- you know, Usually we'd end on the Oscars and the Academy Awards and all that stuff. But we're here at point of international English language release. And I guess we should talk about it, shouldn't we? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I am very tired from talking. So Jake and Steph us in our shoes back in October going to see the film what were we expecting what did we get um so we were expecting to see some beautiful animation on screen from the best to ever do it but I had avoided the trailer um I hadn't actually gone through all of the stills or tried to see anything on social media I still actually have everything all the keywords I could think of muted on Twitter to stop (laughs) which I should probably stop now Um, and so I really was trying to go in as Suzuki intended as much as possible on this I really didn't know anything about it like plot wise at all Um, and so I was lucky enough to see this film twice during its plays at the London Film Festival and I suppose the first time watching it was just trying to take it all in 
uh, from a kind of creative point of view, but from a story point of view as well. Because I, you just really are trying to soak up every detail, but also try and follow it along. Because we will discuss, it's quite a mad narrative that we are sent on. Um, and then second time round, able to settle into the grooves of it and try and understand what it's doing. Like, what has this film actually got to say? Um, and how is it trying to say it? And it was really, really lovely because I was really nervous. And I don't know whether you two felt this. We've dedicated a lot of time to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and so as much as I was excited, like this was like the one film of the year that in any kind of social situation people would talk to me about because it's like oh Jake he does the Ghibliotech he writes the books oh what's that film <laughs> oh what's that about talk to him about and it's so in a, there was this almost a kind of burden on us with this film as well mm-hmm. as uh, not spokespeople but you know there was there was and a kind of onus that we we lit will literally be speaking about it as we are right now, um, and about an hour at the into it, I just felt the kind of this weight lift off of me because I suddenly felt like he's nailed it. This is amazing. Um, it really is a proper masterpiece, I, and I do think it's an incredible film i think it's kind of unwieldy and imaginative but i do think it's mm-hmm. like a, a, a perfect film really for him to be making at this point in his life i yeah i adore it from like from the animation to its philosophy it's incredible steph mm. Mm. yeah i think like you i was nervous about having to to watch it and then immediately think what are my opinions on this film what am I going to say um but for the first yeah so I saw it at London Film Festival in one of the screenings that they put on um and I just decided like I've seen the trailer it's not giving much away I'm just going to go into it without my notebook and just enjoy it as somebody who's seeing this film for the first time like I've never seen a new release Studio Ghibli film in the cinema so I'm just going to go to it as like a film fan, as a Ghibli fan and just like let it hit me and then I'll think about notes a bit later. Um, and I think that was a good way to go into it because, yeah, I think, Jake, even if you'd watched the trailer, you wouldn't have spoiled anything for yourself. Like there's, it's really not giving a lot away once you see it. Um, so I think it was yeah good to good to have like built up the hype for myself and then gone into it just as a bit of a fan um watching it for the first time um but yeah i i am kind of glad i did that because afterwards i really was not sure about what i thought about it like i knew i really liked it you can obviously see this is like his masterpiece his masterwork um but there were yeah things within it in the actual like experience of watching it that I wasn't necessarily sure about. So I will definitely be back on Boxing Day to watch it again, to like decide for the third time what I think <laughs> about it. Um, but Michael, how was it for you? I, I love the fact that we're all nervous because imagine if like this was his big 
QAnon anti-vax cancel culture movie. (laughs) (laughs) Tell the kids. No, I I guess, yeah, for me, I don't know if I was nervous because I guess I'm older than you both and this wasn't the first Ghibli film I'd seen. I guess I'd saw The Wind Rises in a similar way when I saw it in Venice 10 years ago. Even though it'd been out in, in Japan, this was like its first viewing by the, the the wider world and this was before the time where we had such a vibrant online community of people who you know we, we knew people who went to japan and saw it 11 times and then could you know write very in-depth essays in the run-up to its international release i tried to avoid as much of that as possible but i suppose out of the three of us i'm a little bit more social media active um and at least in when it comes to ghibli stuff and i'm running the twitter account so i there's only so much that i can ignore all of that but yeah, I was really overwhelmed by it because it is, as Jake said, an, un- an unwieldy work. There's so much in it. It, But then also, so much about Miyazaki and Ghibli has been calcified or formalised in the last few years, be it Ghibli vibes or the way that critics talk about his films, about being a master of the magic in the everyday, a master of not talking down to children, in making children's movies all of these sort of very easy simple one-liners of bullet points about what his style is and i'm happy that those things exist because it makes our job easier to plug into those conversations but um listening back to the podcast over the years we've found so many contradictions and so many sharp edges and corners within that style within his worldview that are fascinating to talk about and unravel and this film is that completely it's fascinating and it should be treated on a level with i don't know silence Martin Scorsese, a great personal epic that is very much meditating on pet themes i have a feeling that this film is already being i don't want to say undermined or pigeonholed but you can read reviews where it's like and of course the animation is amazing and it's miyazaki with these themes and those themes as opposed to being wrestled with and think pieced and so many essays um dedicated to it which i think is important because it is there's so much in it what he's doing what he's doing differently how he's looking back at the past looking forward to the future i've had to had conversations with people which sees this not so much as a swan song or a final statement but a clearing of the decks to look ahead to a new future there are so many different ways to talk about it and this is why i suppose we need to have our hour-long spoilery one where we ask all these questions Mm. and speculate because it's already it's very easy to get away from what the film actually is and i suppose let's go back to what the film actually is because um one thing i will say is it is is, it's fantastic and it has and i i think i like it more than many of his other films Mm. and it works in a way that some of his supposed best films um haven't worked for me that sense that um he makes the films in chunks and it may take turns or what it may be about for the first 20 minutes is it's not about that for another further hour and then it comes back to being about that at the end there are so many interlocking and interweaving lines of how to read the film and enjoy the film that on that first view particularly this unique experience of knowing nothing you're on full sensory overload right because you're seeing characters for the first time at least if you're going into eyes wide shut you know you'll see you know you're going to see tom cruise and nicole kidman in some sense but you're like i've not even seen these characters before these creations or anything so it's quite overwhelming in that sense but where should we start i suppose when we're talking about it what we do on this podcast is 
because we went through these films one by one it's what's different what's new what's familiar what's surprising and i suppose should we go with the surprising stuff first sure. in the story the tone the vibes um well we've got our first kind of young male protagonist i suppose which is quite different well right? o- i know older like, than the lad in ponyo yeah, yeah. i suppose um, yeah. But it is, he is very much like the central character, where I'd say like in Cast yeah. in the Sky or in Ponyo, you've got a kind of shared protagonist there. Um, and I think that's very intentional because we are like this film is kind of working on cyclical time and that they are characters in here that need to reflect kind of people in reality, or at least that's what I think, uh, at young ages and much older ages. And it even says in the blurb, it's semi-autobiographical. And so I think we can see Mojito as this mirror for Miyazaki. Um, And so, see, that's very different to what we've seen before, just from a character point of view. Um, But from an animation point of view, there is that expressionistic, that's the word that you mentioned, Michael. There's stuff going on here that we've never seen before and the opening and i think you do see this in the trailer that they are the mojito and his dad are leaving tokyo to the countryside escaping uh fires and the war and that fire as it sweeps across tokyo and ultimately burns up the hospital his mother works in and takes her life that fire is done in a way that's perhaps most reminiscent of Kaguya's escape from Taylor Princess Kaguya, but then mixed with the firebombing of Grave of the Fireflies. And so we talked about in the Wind Rises episode that from a narrative point of view, The Wind Rises is his most Takahata film. But stylistically, he's really pulling from the, the giant sloth now. <laughs> and we almost we think about Miyazaki, even though it is this explosion of creativity. He is kind of locked into a house style, even when he's doing amazing things with it. And seeing this so early on in the film, it's within the first couple of minutes you see this. And it lo- it looks like celluloid being burnt, like it warps in like in the picture. Like these faces kind of bulge and burn away. It's really quite horrible. And to show you that early on, you think, oh, wow. It's amazing. He is excited and intrigued by new ways of approaching this and what he can do with animation. And so it's just this nice calling card at the beginning to tell you that you don't really know what to expect story-wise, but also formally as well. And that is the Shinya Ohira sequence. Mm. I think, and that is, I think, reading that he worked on so many Masaki Oasa projects kind of unlocked something for me that that is almost like having a little bit of a Yuasa type film, but within the framework of a very serious, dramatic, thrilling Miyazaki film, something that's looser than you'd ever seen before, but mm. it's following the emotion of a scene and letting it warp in the way that Takahata loved to do in his later films, use, you know, trying to bring the intentionality of the line or the an- animator's pen um, through in the final work. Really astonishing stuff, for sure. But I, I think beyond that, there's a real surprise in the the structure of it. I think you mentioned like something with like Spirited Away, which does just kind of just kind of 
expand and expand and expand exponentially from a story point of view until it can't really go anywhere and they quickly have to solve it. This feels beautifully structured uh, in the point that it does get kind of more abstract as it goes along, but it finds a, a great kind of end point and then gets out really quickly. Um, but that the first third of the film, which has Mojito at this country home, kind of trying to deal with the death of his mother, the fact that his new quote-unquote mother is his mother's sister, and so they look exactly the same. So it's this strange feeling of grief and it's like haunting ways having to see this doppelganger at all times. And it's a very strange house that's made up of multiple buildings. And you have this like Greek chorus of old women that <laughs> follow him around. And this is really slow. And it's almost, what, 40 minutes, 45 minutes? And there's really, and I only really noticed this on the second time watching it, there's not a lot of dialogue. Like, there's really, really not a lot of talking in the whole film up until the point that they enter the other world. And I think like that's, we're showing how confident he is in the animation and how much trust he's got in the audience to be patient. That we're just going to experience this world and all the details of this world and just watch the heron fly around. And the heron is amazing because it moves so slowly. Like the wing beats sound like propellers on like a wind turbine. Like they just th like have this slow thud to them. And you have just all this time observing this world. It's quite amazing. I think there's, you said like there's not a lot of dialogue in that section, but I feel like he's doing so much with the animation of each set of characters in that area. So like Mahito and his aunt and his father, and then the group of old women, and then the heron. You have these three different kind of styles or sections all kind of going together. Um, this was, I think my favorite section of the film not saying that i don't like the rest because i definitely do but i think that kind of almost like slice of life style that's going on in the first kind of 40 minutes where he's just in this countryside house and you're just yeah it's very focused on you know making all of those details of like how would mahito get dressed like a real person like that's animated so well but then you have these like old ladies who are slightly they don't look the same as the other like human characters they're kind of like squished down to like this weird size and they're lumpy but they're wired and they all have these amazing walk cycles where one of them's just doing this lovely little arm motion while she's walking <laughs> and there's kind of loads of these weird little details but yeah I love all of that kind of focus on like the human side before we get into this absolutely mad world later on um, and they'll, it elicited so many laughs that mm. first kind of 40 minutes even from like the heron like squeezing in through a window head first and struggling to like fit just people were giggling all over the room yeah there's there's so much to enjoy in this film it's so delightful and not necessarily in that way that where it's um you know cozy it's it's just really funny in the details um and that's while it's also quite heavy in the themes like it starts off from a point of grief it's in this wartime uh situation he's um evacuated you know out to the country it's very similar to something like narnia in that sense the, the tradition of british evacuation stories but 
Um, and within that, you have survivor guilt, you have middle class guilt and shame because he's a middle class boy in this very rural area where all the other kids are being conscripted into being voluntary agricultural workers. But then at the same time, the opening bit is where he's just being badgered by this really weird heron that seems to lord <laughs> it over the estate um, in various forms. And yeah, the, the, I love the old women. Um, there's like a, even just that one shot, as you say, the walk cycle step. It's just one shot of them walking from one side of the screen to the other through the house. And we, you know, it, it doubles the canon of amazing old ladies in Miyazaki <laughs> movies. Uh, House Moving Castle and Spirited Away have given as many in the past, um, as did Ponyo. But this is uh, this is something else. And then yeah, it then takes that turn into fantasy world, and. I saw reviews saying, and then Miyazaki was on more home turf at that point. I don't know. What, what, do, you, what do you guys think about the, the latter half of the film? I mean, there's, in, there's it, so much here that we've never seen him do before. Mm. I, I don't know how this is home turf. It's home turf in that it's not reality, I guess. But he's doing lots of... like. There's stuff that I sp- you can draw kind of familiar lines between them. Like, there is imagery here of ships that I think recalls the imagery of planes in Porco Rosso in a kind of spiritual sense but I think that's that's kind of reductive to think of him as as almost like treating him in fantasy as its own genre like it just becomes another playground for him and there are sequences here that are entirely different but also from a storytelling point of view it he gives himself the freedom that nothing really needs to make sense or connect and it's a bit more lucid and scenes can take place in one setting and immediately move into another that is moves from a kind of natural forest like setting into more of a I don't know a classical Roman hall but they seem to be next to each other and it feels more expressionistic in that respect it's all every scene is about maximizing the impact in that moment and that we're given the trust to connect them and follow the character through these spaces and it does more it's more of a dream space than spirited away in that respect because spirited Mm. away at least has a kind of continuity within the bathhouse space i suppose whereas this can go anywhere in any direction and it makes it so exciting but i think like this idea of so this ship there is an island that is the shape of a ship and there are all these ships floating around and to me that's like that's really key because i think this is a film that's all set in transitory spaces everything is about movement and it's moving from one thing to the next thing to the next thing and viewing this as a story about mortality and a story about grief that everything here is all about movement whether that is characters moving from one setting to another or the settings themselves and like you can see that in his approach to it. He wants to constantly keep you guessing and keep you excited about what the next place might be. I guess the kind of whoever's saying that he's on familiar turf with this, like if you've seen Spirited Away recently before you've seen this, that might feel like a kind of an apt description of the second half of the film. But I think it's... it. It definitely has elements of that, of being just dragged through this fantasy world. There's lots of rules you have to pick up along with the character and you're greeted with a new, bizarre 
character design and interesting thing like every kind of five minutes um but i think it's just operating on like a whole other level with this overarching set of themes constantly mm. kind of feeding into whatever crazy adventure you're on in that moment yeah because I, I i think that um within spirited away and we've we've said on the podcast before that we think that that film has a a lumpy structure or a um, a strange structure to it storytelling wise this film does become quite episodic it made me think a lot of the Earthsea novels and i know that it's that that sort of influence on miyazaki is um quite overstated uh in the sense that to be very very reductive about sci-fi and fantasy novels you either have the thousand page one that explains every rule of the world and you learn everything or you have the 300 page ones which leaves a lot to the imagination but it's more episodic discovering character and places this is more like the latter kind where mojito is journeying through this space discovering things then moving on to something else but there is this overarching structure to it this sense of the grand uncle character this mysterious uh disappeared you know uh, elusive character who holds some sway over the family over the estate and then this strange tower that he built then disappeared into. So we know where we're going. We have the the journey. So it means that we can vibe out with all of these moments. And some of them are just so wonderful. There is a sequence with um, the cute breakout characters of the film, the Wara Wara, <laughs> where just in the space of maybe a 15-minute sequence, we had delivered a lot of evocative lore for these characters i suppose and what they are what they represent but really it's just a nighttime ballet of seeing them fly in the sky with some really wonderful joe hisaishi music and jake you said this is quite minimal in terms of dialogue this film but the, listening back to the soundtrack the soundtrack is all these perfect miniature cues all the way through they're two or three minutes long there's not that much music either in the film but what is there is just perfectly formed yeah it's an incredible score we said in our joe hisaishi concert episode that we were teased a piece of music and gosh anytime it appears in this it's so powerful and it's so it's so sparse in that respect um but in a way that makes it more direct and it feels so connected to this character and this experience and it feels like we we were so lucky of seeing joe play that and seeing the emotion that he felt playing it and i couldn't help connect that to my experience watching it and hearing those notes so this as we said is a bit of a spoiler light tread through the film we're going to go deeper next time but is there anything else we can dance around or mention for listeners on their first view of the film well I, that that idea of it being a message to his grandson i think is really fascinating and I think there absolutely is a message of the film in that specific nature of grief, where it is a communication from one generation to another generation in a kind of familial line. And that absolutely works. But I kind of think this is also a message to Ghibli fans, animation fans, in a way. And I think, see how you get on with it, because once it rolls into its final 20 minutes or so, and the grand uncle becomes more of a key character in the film. It gets into such fascinating territory, which I absolutely love. Um, we will could go on for hours about in our spoiler episode. 
I don't want to say anything without being spoilery, but certain characters that I think people should watch out for to enjoy are certain types of birds. I think we see some parakeets in the trailer. Enjoy those. Um, and also Mahito's dad, I think, is a lesser seen but MVP character in the film. He's great. Yes. Yeah, Ghibli, and a, a surprise, dad. yeah, a surprise Ghibli dad compared to what we might expect yes. of Ghibli. Also, um, shout out to an amazing bit of um, butter and jam on bread. An incredible food moment. I, I think that leads into something I, I want to say. I think that look at how this is, I think, his funniest film. I think this is his grossest film. I think that it's his least cozy film. It's his scariest well. film. Mm-hmm scariest film so there's a lot of themes and emotions and experiences in this film that i think are new and different and very fascinating for somebody who's been on the ghibli attack journey like we have and looking at everything that's, that's happened before and how what's different here but it is the weight of legacy what we take from others what we get from others what others give to us and then how we live with all those things all those influences um on our personalities and our characters so gosh We'll go deeper next time, but the boy in the heron, everybody. <laughs> it's been a long time since we've had to put a Ghibli film into our rankings. I don't think we should really try and put it on an actual number. But the one question I want to ask is, Steph, what would your ranking be called? Did we ever give it a title? Ooh. I don't think we ever did because I don't think I've ever done one and I haven't done one for this either. So <laughs> maybe but like a where, what's what's the list? The what's list? The what's yeah, list. Yeah, let's go with that for now. <laughs> but I guess if we're talking about tiers, is this top tier, middle tier, lower tier? Because um, I think this is definitely top tier for me. I think that this um, definitely deserves to rank alongside my favorite of his works and in a different you know it, it resounds to me in a different way to many of his works i loved that essayistic feeling of the wind rises it's something that you can wrestle with and find new depth in that's definitely here but it's also such a great statement of intent in within animation within storytelling definitely up, up there for me i mean yeah i agree this is just top tier for me. oh yeah it's top, top tier for me for sure yeah Usually we'd have this in the context, but we would be talking about its Academy Award run. This has not happened yet. Um, do we fancy its chances? The big question. Um, I'm going to run through what it's up against this year because it's quite a stacked field for animation, best animated feature. It's up against Elemental and Wish. It's up against Across the Spider-Verse, Trolls Band Together, Super Mario Brothers movie. I mean, they're the massive major studio type films. Then in the sort of slightly more artistic realm, we have Chicken Run 2, new Ardman film. We have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, Nimona, Robot Dreams. I mean, we can't really rely on the award bodies to do the right thing, can't we? I can easily see them just go giving it all to major studios this year, all the nomination spots. Do you think it'll slip through? I'd, I'd love for it to get in. I'd love for it to win. Um, I feel like the popular vote is probably spider-verse but i'd like that they would just hold off on giving it to spider-verse until that film has a sequel that they can just give it to them as a kind of pat on the back for both i'd i'd love mutant mayhem to get nominated i'd love robot dreams to get nominated 
I think the first five you mentioned, Elemental, Wish, Spider-Verse, Super Mario and Trolls, I'd happy I'd be happy for none of those to get nominated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, there are, there's there's the the dream category, which is all of the stuff that's actually really good and really vibrant and shows a bright future for animation and hopefully this could be in the mix of them. I think what's dinging it a little bit is it's not really a family film. Mm-hmm. It's a PG thirteen is it PG thirteen? It's definitely a twelve A here. So it's not put your kids in front of Totoro for an hour and see their eyes light up. Mm. Um, it's some, certainly a bit more, if not grown up, then a bit more challenging, and it, but not challenging in a way that um, a animated look at the life of a artist or Holocaust survivor or something, you know, whatever. You know, it's not a themes movie, an obvious themes historical movie that um, the Academy usually goes for. So we'll have to see how that fares. But I guess. Our time has run out for the standard spoiler light episode of The Boy and the Heron. Uh, We've got to go back to the real world um, of our lives and leave behind a world of fantasy. So we will be back. We've already got a a running list of bullet points and questions. I have the art of Boy and the Heron book for us to go through and get a bit deeper into the film. But that's our take on the film to begin with. So we'll be back with that episode shortly. And listeners, if you do see the film over December and have thoughts to send in, please send them in to us. We are ghibliatech at gmail.com. Find us on social media. Find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ghibliatech, where we have our library cafe episodes. We're over on Twitter at ghibliatech. Instagram, ghibliatech.pod. We're also all there individually on social media. Jake is there on Twitter, Jake H. Cunningham. Instagram, jake.h.cunningham. Steph's on x slash Twitter at underscore Steph Watts. And Michael is on x slash Twitter at Michael J. Leader and on Instagram at Michael.Leader. Ghibliotech is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ng. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free warbyparker.com slash covered planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.